Hello, AJT readers. Welcome to the July podcast highlights. I'm your host, Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Josh Levitsky is on sabbatical as the American Society of Transplant President. So today I'm joined by a special uh, guest. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Seth Carr, Professor of Surgery and Chair of the Department of Surgery at Vanderbilt uh, Transplant Center and Medical Center uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And our AJT fellow is Thiago Borges. He's an instructor of surgery to the Massachusetts General Hospital and a postdoctoral fellow. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm going to go through the rundown of our run of show today. We'll first start off with the paper by Lee et al. from the Duke University Research Group. It's entitled Xeno Recognition and Co-Stimulation of Porcine Endothelial-Derived extracellular vesicles and initiating human porcine-specific T-cell immune responses. Our second paper will be that by the Telefy Tele-Liver Frailty Index, development of a novel tool for frailty in patients with cirrhosis via telemedicine. This is by uh, Wang et al., um, multi-center research study. Our third paper will be the 20-year paradigm shift towards Oregon Recovery Centers, the 2,500 donors at Mid-America Transplant and Broader Adoption Across the United States by Marklin et al. Our fourth paper will be outcomes of liver and lung transplant after simultaneous recovery using abdominal normothermic regional perfusion in donors after circulatory determination of death versus donors after brain death by Campo. Kanye Viral de la Cruz and Beatrice Dominguez, Gil Dominguez et al. This is a science, uh, Spanish transplant registry group study. And finally, uh, because we'll be probably a little bit out of time, I just want to touch upon the stakeholders' perspectives on transplant metrics 2022 uh, SRTR recipients uh, conference. So we have a lot to cover today, gentlemen. Uh, Thiago, I'm going to have you go kick it off and tell us a little bit about this Zeno paper. Sure. So thanks for having me. I'm very excited to participate in the AJT podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to chat about this article by Lee et al. So this is a very interesting article that starts highlighting the advancement of xenotransplantation as an alternative to the shortage of uh, donor organs. And they also mentioned the first peak to human cardiac xenotransplantation recently performed. However, as they point out, uh, there are still several aspects of xenotransplantation that remain to be elucidated before its broader use in the clinic. They highlight the fact that endothelial cells are the first barrier between the xenograft and the host's immunity. And which is very interesting is that porcine vascular endothelial cells or PACs, and you guys are going to listen a lot about PACs, they can express swine leukocytes uh, antigens class 1 and class 2. And also they, it's reported to they can express co-stimulation molecules like CD80 and CD86 under certain circumstances. Um, they also mention about allo recognition. That's when the host's uh, immune system recognizes donor antigens by different mechanisms. And one of these mechanisms, mechanisms is when extracellular vesicles from the donor organ are produced and incorporated on the, mem- on the membrane of host antigen-presenting cells. And that's how we differ as a cross-dressing. 
and also very interestingly, these vesicles itself, they can carry uh, MHC and co-stimulation molecules leading to the activation and proliferation of anti-donor T cells. However, is is still unknown uh, whether these extracellular vesicles from porcine vascular endothelial cells play a role in the xenoantigen presentation and co-stimulation. So this is the main scientific gap of the paper. So the authors ha have this hypothesis that these packs they could produce extracellular vesicles expressing uh, swine uh, leukocyte antigens, and that would be uh, recognized by the human T cells, leading to the uh, activation and proliferation of xenoreactive T cells. So uh, in terms of novel methods, they employ uh, several interesting uh, experiments using co-cultures of primary pig endothelial cells with human PBMCs. They also use purified CD4 or CD8 T cells as well, uh, purified monocytes. And in these uh, co-cultures, they evaluated uh, the different uh, immune uh, cell activation status. They evaluated cytokines being produced by these immune cells. And they did some elegant experiments to investigate the transfer of the pig antigens to the human immune cells, mainly the swine leukocyte antigen class one and class two. And um, they, in this set of experiments, they use imaging flow cytometry, which is a very uh, cool technique that we have that we could uh, image each cell passing through the flow of the machine. In terms of main findings, um, they show that the PACs indeed can express the swine leukocyte antigens class one from the baseline. And after stimulation, they also express uh, the uh, class two uh, molecule. And when they co-culture these packs with both CD4 or CD8 T cells, the T cells start to proliferate and they acquire a memory phenotype. And it was kind of uh, already published and they try to dive into the mechanisms why this was happening. Uh, and very interesting, in my opinion, is that this proliferation was independent of the antigen-presenting cells. And they demonstrated that by uh, depleting CD14 monocytes from the PBMCs or when they co-culture purified T cells with this pack. So this raised the hypothesis that PACs were directly induced the proliferation of human T cells. And one of the ways that they would do that would be by releasing these extracellular vesicles. So they characterize the vesicles that the packs were producing. They show they express swine leukocyte antigens class one and class two. And, and also they show that actually this proliferation of T cells in contact with PAC was independent of our content. So indeed highlighting that, uh, the, these vesicles could have a role, uh, in this phenomenon. So they also show that very interesting that the human CD4 and CD8 they indeed could acquire uh, the swine antigens, mainly this uh, swine leukocyte antigen class one, but not class two. And by using this imaging flow cytometry, they show that actually this swine leukocyte class class one they were co-localizing uh, with the human T cells TCR, and this uh, could suggest that the vesicles itself were directly activating the T cells. They also demonstrate that when you culture these vesicles with CD4 and CD8 T cells, they, indeed they start to proliferate in vivo, so um, building up all the story. And these uh, T cells, interestingly, acquire an effector uh, phenotype that in the clinic, it, it was associated with co-stimulation uh, blockade resistance. 
So uh, this could be important uh, later on uh, in the clinic. They also, in my opinion, did a, a very important control in which they co-culture human monocytes cross-dress with the swine antigens, and those monocytes fail to induce the proliferation of human T cells. Again, highlighting that the vesicles itself that were doing the job in activating uh, the T cells. And I, I really like the way they finished the paper showing that if you incubate the vesicles with co-stimulation blockade or conventional immunosuppressive agents like tacolimus and hapamycin, you avoid the, this activation of the human T cells in vitro. And I think this is this directly activation of T cells by vesicles, a very cool phenomenon. I, I know it has been reported a little bit in the uh, tumor world, and now we can we know it can happen in xenotransplantation. Uh, I think as a follow-up, that would be interesting to check if that's happening in the in an allograft setting, or if this is like organ dependent. Is all the organs doing that, or it's just you know there is some differences between the different organs? And they they finished the paper naming this kind of new type of xeno recognition as a secondary direct pathway. So I think this is um, yeah I think this is a very interesting paper and I hope you guys can go to the this uh, issue of AJT and, and check it out. Well, thanks for that really nice summary, Thiago. Uh, you know, from a from a personal perspective, it's great to see groups working on the cellular immunity. I think there is a continued ongoing focus, obviously, of antibody mediated injury in these graphs, but this is kind of concerning and worrisome, I think, in terms of the fact that these vesicles can be released at any time. And so so one of my questions is, it looks like TAC, the conventional therapies, TAC, RAPA, didn't inhibit the, the stimulation, right? But it was, but Bilatisept or, you know, anti-CD40, CD40 ligand seemed to be more effective in vitro. Yeah, I, I think they both blocked it. They both stimulate. Okay. Yeah, okay. so which is... I think it's good in terms of moving forward, right? But uh, I think, as you said, the, the donor organ, the endothelial cells will be always there. So, you know, maybe these vesicles will be always being released uh, at long term. So how that would impact the, you know, the, the following uh, cellular immunity, that will be interesting to check. And also, I think, as you mentioned about antibodies, will these vesicles affect B cells, for example? Or, right. you know, uh, there will also be an interesting follow-up study. Well, great. And, and needless to say, you know, I have uh, several other questions, but I don't think we'll have time. So again, thanks for presenting this. And again, really nice work coming out of the, the one of the Duke groups, Hiju and, and, and Alan Kirk as well as the senior members of the lab. All right. Well, let's, we're going to turn it now to more clinical matters. So um, Dr. Karp, tell us a little bit about this Tele liver frailty index. Thanks, Roz. It's a pleasure to be uh, on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm Seth Karp. I am the Surgeon in Chief of the Healthcare System here at Vanderbilt and the Chair of the Section of Surgical Sciences. So this paper uh, by, by Wang et al. is an important paper that presents a method to assess frailty as a tool to predicting outcomes in liver transplantation. But the interesting thing about this paper is that it uses a telemedicine approach. And with the advent of, uh, with, with the onset of COVID, and the movement to telemedicine, this is a, a application of new technology for a problem that itself has been uh, being addressed uh, really more recently. So it, the paper addresses a number of issues. It recognizes the important of, of frail, importance of frailty in patient assessment. 
and develops a method to evaluate it with this, which is patient friendly. One of the interesting potential applications is that it, for, it could apply to rural patients as well as patients with limited transplant, uh, limited transportation means. Of course, assuming they have access to the internet. So, by way of of a baseline, frailty is reduced physiologic reserve. Uh, it is often associated with patients with chronic cirrhotic liver disease. Patients with high frailty scores typically have a high risk of death. They have high risk of complications after a liver transplant. And the use of the liver frailty index has been endorsed by both the AST and the AASLD. And so that methodologies, new methodologies to evaluate frailty is something that uh, the community and I feel are, are quite important. So in the past, uh, the, the liver frailty index or LFI has had to be assessed in person. Uh, and with this new technology, the potential is to be able to do this by telemedicine. And this would provide a new a new platform to uh, to assess frailty uh, in this important measure. So the um, the authors in the paper used data from a multi-center functional assessment in liver transplantation. The study was performed at three U.S. centers and included data from 2021 to 2022. The inclusion criteria were that the patients needed to have a history of cirrhosis. They had to be over 18. They had to be seen in the ambulatory clinic, and they had to be actively listed for liver transplantation. Exclusion criteria included patients who did not speak either English, Spanish, or Chinese, or, ha or who had significant encephalopathy. The way the study was set up, the patients performed an in-person frailty assessment. This included grip strength, chair stands, and balance. In the same setting, they were then moved to a separate room with a video conferencing capability. So, so obviously, it's clear that this is not, these, this is not a, a group that is being assessed at home, but is still in the clinic space, and that has implications for the potentially the applicability of this. The statistical analysis included a chi-square and Crisco-Wallace testing, and they went down a statistical pathway in which they used linear regression to develop what they're calling a tele, telefi, T-E-L-F-I, telefi scores or, or telemedicine-based liver frailty index scores. Uh, the components uh, of this were used in a multivariate linear, linear analysis to identify individual questions on the study that were most closely related to the in-person liver frailty index. The models were then developed using best subset selection. The highest impact variables were used in a lasso selection process. And model, models were ultimately chosen based on Bayesian information criteria, the C statistic, but also ease of use uh, with, the, uh, with the understanding that, that actually having to use these models in a real-world setting was very important. The model coefficient weighted sum of the predictors was then used to derive a risk score. The accuracy was then assessed using a five-fold internal cross-validation process. Two models with similar accuracy were compared using net reclassification improvement and integrated discrimination improvement. And these models were, these two models that were chosen were based really on the, uh, on the simplicity. One was based mostly on simplicity, the other potentially better accuracy. So I'll talk a little bit about the results now. The study population, the participants had a mean age of 60 years old. 36% of them were women. Six of them had previously undergone liver transplantation. Uh, the, liver, the median liver frailty index in the population was 3.7, which represented the fact that about 15% of the patients would, were considered frail. Interestingly, the frail participants were more likely to have diabetes and coronary artery disease, but there were no differences in age, sex, ethnicity, or meld between the frail and non-frail frail patients. I found it uh, particularly interesting that it was not that sex, I'm sorry, that age or uh, MELD score did not, uh, was not impactful for the frailty index. 
uh, in virtually administered survey-based tools compared to non-frail patients, frail patients had higher hand activity questionnaire scores and difficulty generally with hand activity. Frail patients had higher SARC F scores and difficulty with strength, stairs, and standing. Frail patients also had lower Duke activity scores. On performance-based tools, frailty, frail patients fared poorly on chair stands and balance tests, no surprise there. The group then took seven candidate models and tested those models. A model was settled on as the best and included uh, virtually assessed performance-based chair stands, uh, the Duke Activity Status Index, and the, chance, and the transfer from chair to bed from the SARC F screen. In evaluating this model, patients with this TELEFI frail score is defined as an LFI of greater than 4.5, and patients with a positive TELEFI score were more likely to be frail by an LFI of greater than 4.4, uh, which represented 63% uh, being, uh, being frail as versus 12% that were not identified as being frail. So I'll talk a little bit about the kind of the meaning and, and implications of the study. Uh, of course, telemedicine potentially allows us to better assess patients without having them travel to the office. Uh, this can be of great benefits to our patients, especially those with limited means or have difficulty traveling for us in Tennessee. We have many rural patients, and we have found uh, in our center that telemedicine, even expecting that patients may have limited access to, to video conferencing, actually most of our patients, even poor and rural, even patients that don't have access to, to transportation, actually do have access to video conferencing services. So uh, very um, nice to see that this would be something that could probably be applied pretty broadly to rural communities. The proposed tool, importantly, is a pretty, it's a simple study. Uh, it's a Duke assessment. And then one simple question about the ability to transfer from chair or bed. Importantly, it does not require specialized equipment. Uh, the authors, and I agree, are quick to point out that Telefy is not meant to replace the in-person assessment, but rather to complement it. What do you do with this information? This is always a question in the field. Well, patients are high frailties. How does that impact your, your management? And the authors point out, I think importantly, that these patients may need frequent follow-up. They may need targeted interventions to maintain their strength or prevent them from getting worse. Uh, or uh, additionally, explorations of other options for transplants, including live donor options or marginal organs. It's possible that as patients' frailty get, uh, gets worse, their risk gets gets higher that the patients then the calculation between using it to use a marginal organ might be quite different between a patient who is not frail but and a patient who is frail. The authors also, I think, importantly point out that although the technology can be used to decrease health disparity, it can also be a way to um, to increase. I'm sorry, instead of decreasing health disparity, it could also increase health disparity uh, given resources to human access to these resources can sometimes be unequal. And so that needs to be addressed uh, by the community as we use this. Uh, ultimately, the authors provide two versions of the Telefy score, and I was happy to see this. One does not include a performance-based options for patients without access to video. And so even what the authors are proposing is a is a uh, basically a phone-based question uh, group, which doesn't even need video. And so this can certainly be done remotely. And most patients obviously will have access to, to phone service in some ways. The limitation of the study are the small size, the fact that uh, the, the study was performed uh, in the outpatient setting using a, a little bit of a contrived setting where patients were in a different room. And so it doesn't address real world challenges, which are not captured in the study. And those might be difficulty in getting the hookups, the reliability of the hookup and the logistics around that. So overall, I think an important contribution to the way that we evaluate the risk uh, in our patient, and it does it in a way 
that uh, is very patient friendly and could fairly easily be implemented uh, by by many centers across the country. And I'll stop there. Sounds sounds enlightening and intriguing at the same time. You know, I was sort of curious, you know, I think the biggest problem we have, for example, in our state is the lack of broadband access. So it's nice to see that they actually came up with an opportunity that maybe you do it by a lamp, by a phone. And, and I guess, Seth, the next step is really doing this in sort of a real world or a validation experience. Do you see, you know, individual centers just sort of picking this up or is this going to be most likely that way rather than a big, you know, randomized control study, I presume? Yeah, um, I think that obviously would be up to the authors, but it's easy enough to implement for the individual centers. And I would encourage centers to think about implementing something like this because it's, I think this, the study is well performed and I think it gives good information and can be, you know, could be implemented quite, quite quickly by any center that was interested. Great. I hate to keep you on point, but um, tell us a little bit about um, the Marklin uh, paper from the Midwest Transplant um, OPO. I think this is their 20-year update and a personal viewpoint about operations and their um, on-site um, Oregon Recovery Center. Yeah, this is, so this is a really neat paper, and I'll present it in a little bit different format because it's not a, a research paper per se. It's more, uh, more of a retrospective analysis of some really, really uh, groundbreaking and visionary work that's been done by uh, by the St. Louis OPO that a lot of us have been following over the last, I say, as I think the community started to understand this maybe five to 10 years ago and the importance of this. And many of us have been watching carefully for this with, and, and celebrating the success and then trying to re recreate this paradigm in our own areas. So I'll get started. Um, there are two truisms in modern transplantation. Number one is transplant is a miracle of modern medicine. The second is that there aren't enough organs to go around. And the second piece is something that um, uh, takes a lot of the time of many of us. And in order to meet the need for organs, it's important to recognize the complexity of the donation process. The logistics are extraordinarily complicated. And so any way that that we can, anything we can do to improve, increase the organ supply and to meet the logistical challenges is something that is, is very important. This is what this manuscript addresses. For people that don't do this on a daily basis, I can tell you the, the logistics of these transplants involve hundreds of communications per donor. The workups can be very complicated, include the need for advanced diagnostic testing, coordination of this testing. There are multiple teams involved in the procurements. Each needs specific resources and personnel. And so St. Louis was really the, the kind of the paradigm changing group that recognized these complexities and said, hey, maybe we can do this a little bit better. And this goes back to uh, 20, uh, 2001. And so the thinking about this started in the 1990s. And their idea was to set up a hospital independent freestanding organ procurement recovery center. And as they have it now, it's a very sophisticated operation. It handles donor care, transportation, laboratory work, studies, investigations, and all the procurement activities. The model, as I said, has been reproduced in many places. And now there are 24 of these centers that operate across the United States. And this concept has been recently endorsed by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine when they did a review of transplantation and they mentioned making establishment of these types of centers across the entire country are priority. So uh, endorsement from a very influential group about the uh, utility and the success of these centers. So, so going back to a little bit of a history. So back in the 1990s in St. Louis, the local ICU medical directors were frankly concerned about the amount of time it was taking 
to move from organ donation, uh, to move to organ donation from declaration of death and the beds that these uh, patients were occupying that were needed for patients. Um, and their experiences could take uh, more than a day and a half. It would consume testing resources at, at the hospital that were also required for, uh, for patients. And so the proposal was to establish an independent donor center. And obviously this was driven in part by ICU physicians. And so they were very much on board with this. But also the surgeons, I think, presciently and quickly noticed that the logistics would be so much simpler with much less travel and much less variability. Uh, this was also simplified as, as this center started being conceived and built, is that because gases aren't used with the anesthesia, the anesthetic care was much, much simpler. And actually, ICU nurses could be employed, simplify the process greatly. And over time, the space uh, that was occupied by this organ recovery center grew, uh, includes a CT scanner, significant CT scanner, significant lab resources. Uh, there were some initial concerns over safe transport of the donors. Obviously, you are transporting a patient uh, who's uh, who's brain dead, so potentially could be a significant distance and the stability of the donor, and could that donor be lost in transport? And in fact, uh, only two recoveries have been lost in the entire history of the center, which now, now goes back more than 20 years. So the current state, it's a pretty impressive facility. I've been there. Diane Brockmeyer, who runs the center, has been uh, kind enough to invite me, but also keeps the center open as much as possible to teach other people how to do this, and currently involves a six-bed ICU it has advanced monitoring capacity, its ability to perform biopsies, bronchoscopy, CT scanning, including sophisticated studies like pulmonary arteriograms. It includes the imaging software to transmit the images. Uh, unfortunately, and this is an interesting point, is that the facility is not licensed to provide care for live patients. And this is important because DCDs cannot be uh, performed in the facility, which is a potential, a potentially significant limitation. In terms of performance metrics, I think most of us in the field agree that this has been an enormous success. The center currently performs 95% of all donations in the donor service area. Um, as we've set one up uh, locally, I can, there's always concerns about, well, how would you get, will patients agree? Will families agree to come? And I think this is one of those things that when you present it in a way that this is how we do things, patients and families are very happy to, um, to support that. The median length of stay is 46 hours. In 2021, the center managed 169 donors and has now performed over 2,500 donations. 8,840 organs have been transplanted. It's an enormous number. The average of three and uh, more than three and a half donors per, organs per donor is higher than the significantly higher than the national average, and it's higher on a risk-adjusted basis as well. Import, very importantly, I would say donor family satisfaction with the center is very very high. Uh, one of the things we do in transplant is we perform service to the donor families, and the center gets very high marks uh, on that. The travel and procurement time for teams has decreased from 8.3 to an amazing 2.7 hours. There's no surgeon that wouldn't be very happy about that. Call times decreased from 6.6 .6 to 5.2 hours. The center overall wins very high marks from, from surgeons for overall satisfaction, the clinical competence of the staff, and also the staff there are highly satisfied with their job. The cost savings is, uh, or the costs in general are interesting, although the initial build is significant, it's uh, in the many millions of dollars. The overall costs are, are much lower to manage each donor's procedures and studies are, are similarly less expensive. As an example, the CT scanner, although the cost to, with the cost of the build, those costs are recovered in about 24 months. 
and overall costs are about one half as what they were in a hospital-based setting. Uh, based on those numbers, uh, the widespread adoption of these organ recovery centers are thought to be able to increase transplants, uh, plant, transplanted organs by more than 200 and save about $100 million to the healthcare system over a couple of years. So there are, there are multiple models based on this uh, initial paradigm. So organ, center, organ recovery centers uh, have grown up in three different flavors. 11 of them are freestanding independent organ recovery centers. Uh, 11 have the organ recovery centers within a transplant centers, and two have an arrangement with a community hospital to serve as the organ recovery center. So that's your 24 uh, right there. The ORS, uh, organ recovery centers within transplant center and community hospitals uh, can also do DCDs. So um, kind of a summary of this is that this is an innovative model of donor management that has been time proven now to be better than the traditional procurement model uh, at the where the procurement is done at the admission at the admitting hospital. The benefits of this are establishment of a dedicated and knowledgeable staff, uh, increasing organ yield, simplifying logistics, uh, and decreasing costs. In the in the St. Louis Center alone, the organ yield up yield went up by 28% over the last uh, five years. Uh, donor protocols can be uniformly imp implemented uh, for lungs and increase uh, and a change in the uh, procurement protocol increased the procurement of lungs from about 18% uh, to 24%. Other standard protocols include volume resuscitation and prone ventilation. And interestingly, the center can also be more easily used for donor research and intervention protocols, which would be uh, significantly more difficult to do at each individual uh, local hospitals. It's estimated that the break-even point financially for a center like this is 80 to 100 donors, so this not may, may not be possible in all DSAs. Um, there are issues with loss of Medicare cost report reimbursement to the original hospitals uh, that could potentially be addressed at the national level. So my personal view is these centers are incredibly important for increasing donation, especially as we move to broader sharing protocols the standardization uh, with trained professionals is critical. Um, there's data that the, the broader sharing has led to more organ discards, and this is a way potentially to address that. For myself, I'll give two anecdotes. Uh, in the last month alone, I sent a team to a small hospital for a liver in a patient with a BMI of 48 and a long drinking history. Biopsy was not available at that, um, at that hospital. And so I was sent the team, but was very concerned that the liver would not be usable. And in fact, the liver was not. Uh, having an or a donor in an organ recovery center would have prevented the trip, saved money, and not put the team at risk of the flight. Another anecdote, my personal experience was I accepted a liver from Chicago last month, didn't arrive when I expected it to arrive. And then I learned that the courier got lost and couldn't find the center and, and the organ sat there for a couple of hours. Uh, obviously, that would have been much, much less likely to happen in a donor center where this kind of done, thing is done every day. I do want to stress, though, that there, the issue with the inability to perform the DCDs at these donor centers may be an issue uh, as as we get into a, a remarkable expansion of DCDs with a machine perfusion and NRP, uh, this is going to be something that uh, that the ability to to manage DCDs uh, at, at a center like this, I think, would be an enormous, enormously impactful. And I would uh, encourage our community to try to change the law or try to set up systems that would make it possible, in fact, to uh, to do DCDs at these organ recovery centers. And I'll stop there. I appreciate the opportunity to review this really, really, uh, really impactful paper of a very long experience by a, a group of uh, highly dedicated and outstanding professionals. So I remember um, about 10 years ago chairing a session Wednesday at the ATC 
which is always painful because most of the people are gone. And this group presented an abstract and there was just a group of people just stayed behind because they wanted to hear. And this was such a novel concept. I can say from my personal experience in Birmingham, I have a couple of anecdotes where families did appreciate it because we had a small, you know, a very small, very personalized ICU experience and families could really grieve and, and they were there 24 seven and um, in the, b- before recovery of organs. So there was sort of an ability to communicate that. And I think that the staff was really exceptional. Uh, it really mitigated the travel time to rural hospitals where you're waiting, 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 and, you know, you're waiting for what other cases may be going on, but also this travel safety, which I was never really a big fan of. And we remember the very sad loss in Ann Arbor, you know, it seems like a few years ago, it's probably been longer in my memory, but I also had a colleague who passed away recovering heart in uh, New Mexico about 25 years ago. So, and then finally the research aspect, which I think is really significant. And this group has really been exceptional in their wording for Mexican authorization of research, which probably will be a paper we'll talk about eventually in a few months. So thanks, Seth. I'm going to try to bring us home and I'll probably maybe go just a little bit more briefly about our the papers I have. I'm going to talk about normothermic regional perfusion by uh, Campo, uh, Kanye Viral, De La Cruz, uh, Beatriz Dominguez-Gill, and uh, colleagues uh, utilizing Spanish National Registry data from their donation and transplant on transplantation. So, the Spaniards seem to ha- be ahead of us somewhat in terms of using normothermic regional perfusion, and they actually use this for acquisition of all abdominal organs following controlled donation after determination of cardiac death, or CDCD. And so this paper really examined the opportunity to do both simultaneous lung and liver. And there are technical issues when you, you're challenged with lung recovery because this is quite challenging. There's issues of um, bleeding and uh, hypotension and mitigation that abdominal organs would be at a loss because you'd have this long recovery period with the lung. So this group um, looked at a nationwide, using these registries, this is a nationwide multi-center retrospective observational cohort study. They they looked at the recovery of all liver and lungs from both uh, DCD and DBD um, from January 2015 to December 2020 throughout Spain. And the selection criteria that they utilized for their donors were really not different whether they were DCD or DVD. I think there are the standard criteria for liver was in place in terms of age and macroscopic findings. You know, they had a no-touch period in the DCD. They explained um, this all in their methodology. And their NRP parameters were considered sort of standard and included in this paper. If you look on the third page of the paper, uh, they talk about how those standards were provided. For liver injury, the monitoring was done on blood sampling via ECMO. Uh, Every 30 minutes, they check lactate, uh, hematocritin enzymes. And um, uh, what they would go ahead and do is really look at the outcomes of simultaneous acquisition of both lung and liver in their recipients. Uh, by the way, a lot of things in Spain are protocolized, unlike the U.S., where we're individualizing based on center preference. Pretty much every lung transplant gets vasiliximab induction and triple immunosuppression, and liver pretty much just gets uh, triple therapy and only gets induction if there is a kidney transplant. Um, they analyzed over 10,000 donors, 9,000 were DVD, and 1,300 were DCD, so probably 
close to uh, 85% were donation after brain death. And the simultaneous recovery cohort, which is shown in figure one, is much smaller. Um, you can see there's about 1,900 simultaneous liver and lung through DVD, and that's going to be comparing the 227 simultaneous from DCD. The donor characteristics are shown in table one. Obviously, the DVDs have more likelihood of anoxic brain injury. The DCDs were more likely male and diabetic. I, I don't think these stats necessarily very surprising. And interestingly, they looked at the utilization of these organs over time, and that's in figure two. You can see in the beginning um, the recovery, the utilization of those organs in 2015 was significantly lower in lung within the first year. But after their first year of implementing their NRPs and, and DCD, they were utilizing the lungs at the time of also simultaneously getting the liver. The liver seemed to lag a little bit behind. But as of 2020, the utilization of those recovered organs during the simultaneous procedures are really identical. Importantly, are the outcomes. I mean, is this manipulation really affecting how patients do? And um, amazingly, from a standpoint of primary graft dysfunction for lungs, those outcomes were very similar regardless of whether you were NRP with DCD versus DBD and similar 30-day uh, mortality. And importantly, though, though patient survival was numerically lower between the two groups for lung, it was not statistically significant. Again, the, the, the numbers are small, but they did not look to me to be something that was of concern. The overall um, outcomes for the liver recipients were almost spot on identical uh, and very similar for both primary uh, for uh, graft failure um, for one and three year uh, graft outcome. And so I, you know, what's the point of this? I think, you know, as, as Seth pointed out, you know, we're coming to a point now where DCD is really an important and critical part of providing additional organs and the use of normothermic um, perfusion uh, intra-abdominally is I think important in providing recovery of organs that we typically were not able or felt comfortable to use because of their outcomes. And so this group has shown really critical success. But I would say, and it's pointed out in their discussion that their success is really experience-based. And this includes the personnel for the that are involved in normothermic reperfusion. You've got an ECMO team, a donor management team, the, the study, the, the uh, coordinators involved in organ donation, and then the recovering surgeons, because you have two teams, you have a, a thoracic and an abdominal team. And clearly there is hemodynamic instability with lung uh, recovery. And so they highlight some of their meticulous technique and protocols in two publications, one by their group as well as one by uh, the British Transplant Surgery Group. Again, uh, emphasizing hemostasis and azagous vein ligation with further technical details provided. I think it's interesting that the lung outcomes were still excellent despite longer ventilation um, when they had DCD. Again, their management is very protocolized. Um, and age of donors was really not a consideration. I mean, the median age, I think, of the DCDs was over, was over, like in the late 50s in terms of year. Again, there are limitations. This is a registry study, and I get that. And um, it didn't really appear that, that NRP um, would adversely affect utilization of, of DCD lungs, but at least for this study and in this country, even though it's a multi-center, uh, their outcomes look pretty significant. So maybe this is an opportunity 
um, to try to get uh, all hands on deck. And again, our center is doing NRP, but only for liver recovery. We haven't done thoracic recovery yet. And I think it's maybe in its infancy in our center. I can't speak for other centers. Seth, you may have a better understanding of what's going on at national trends. Any comments, Seth? Oh, you're muted too. I'm sorry, Roz. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Any um, any thoughts about um, you know the utilization of NRP with DCD? Any national trends in the U.S. you can comment on? I mean, this group is experienced and very well known. Yeah, you know, we, so we have a big experience with the NRP, and and we've just been incredibly impressed with it. The quality of organs is just it's just much better. It's it transforms the DCD into what's what's really a brain dead donor, and I think the uh, the, as you well know, the DCD utilization uh, is one of the main drivers of the increased uh, number of organs transplanted in the United States. And if you look at the thoracic organs, it's been remarkable. I think if you go back to 2018, there was not, I, I don't believe there was a single heart done as a DCD in 2018. And this year, there will be many hundreds. So, so this is, is here. It's real. The implication of the DCDs for the lung and hearts, and, and I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish about it, but I think that effective utilization of this type of technology will likely lead to uh, almost uh, disappearance of death on the wait list for hearts and lungs. I mean, it's it's that significant. And if you could get another 500 lungs and another, say, 1,000 or, or so hearts a year, uh, you could potentially eliminate death on the waiting list. So the, the implication of these technologies for the thoracic organs, I think, cannot be overstated. Uh, great, I agree. And just getting it implemented. Um, and again, your comments about the previous paper of these uh, freestanding uh, recovery centers and the opportunity to really enhance the utilization of, of DCDs and how to incorporate that into their practice and this licensing. And I think it's going to take the societies to really galvanize and push the whether it's a legislative fix or um, a policy fix in terms of CMS procedures and UNOS you know, procedures and a person DOT. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and your, your comment about this kind of implementation and, and the technical excellence, I think, is really important. So the, these are complicated procedures with, with multiple teams and require a high degree of technical expertise. And so implementation of this and how this gets uh, how this gets um, put out across the country is really, really critical. Well, thank you, guys. I have one last paper. I, I'll just cover it very briefly. Um, this is the stakeholder's perspective of, on transplant metrics. This is a meeting report from the 2022 SRTR consensus meeting by John Snyder et al. and the, and the organizational group. You know, when, when HRSA, the um, Health Resources Services Administration, um, contracted and set up the contract for data recovery and, and, and metric development to SRTR. It had a specific task in the contract, and that was called Task 5. And Task 5 is really to identify the metrics to assess national transplant system performance and support informed decision-making by critical audiences. That was part of the, the quote-unquote in the contract. And so um, this created a, a very lengthy process, which started in part with this meeting, which was an, a constituent-held meeting in July uh, up in Minneapolis. It involved about 300 individuals, transplant professionals, patients, 
other stakeholders, including insurers and, and uh, advocacy groups. It involved uh, about a third of us were actually remote. I actually did it on hybrid as a member of the review group. I'm not going to get into all the specifics. It's worth a good read because a lot of the effort that SRTR is moving forward is really being driven by the stakeholders report. There's a key figure, uh, you know, the methodology is shown in in figure one and two, but I thought that the most impactful figure to me is figure three is the transplant system. And in developing the framework for this meeting, there is um, a human-centered design subcommittee now employed by SRTR. And these are individuals that look at things and say, how do regular people understand? How does the late public understand this? And so they started off with a very small figure and then it created this sort of spaghetti figure. Some people liken it to the Manhattan subway, the New York subway system. Well, I figured that out because I flew around it as a kid, but I think I found that Paris Airport is more like this map, but again, shows you the the complexity of our transplant system and where different individuals or items become part of that system. And there's really almost 26 different steps and interventions. There was a lot of work done. It identified 160 potential recommendations in terms of whether it's a metric or information providing some of the low hanging fruit, so to speak, are things that the SRTR already has data access to. Some will require new ability to collect data. For example, the number of referrals that are the calls that you get or the submissions you get and how many of those individuals actually move forward and transplant and what are the denominators in some of our processes are being developed. There is alignment in some of these between different groups. And so there has to be you know, identification within both the priorities of the transplant system, as well as for patients and and their families and those on the waiting list to identify what's important and each step along that transplant system. And again, great figure to educate a patient when they come in and they go, where am I? It's kind of a stone cold sobering figure, but I, I like it and I think it's very effective. Uh, there is alignment in this report in terms of what the NASM report identified, and that's shown in, in Table 4. And again, the, the next steps continue to be the SRT are attacking or addressing each and every one of these, providing this information to both, you know, ethics and the MPSC, and, and then also, uh, you know, outwardly facing to the public. They are doing a website redesign. I have to say that UNOS has a website redesign, so as the chair of the committee, I'm kind of encouraging them to be unified so we don't have five different websites and confuse patients better. But I think if you're involved in transplantation, you really need to read this paper to understand sort of the complexity of what we're going through and that, you know, how do we define what are the impactful metrics? Everybody hates metrics, but um, again, what are the things that patients want to hear? And sometimes patients want to hear things that are really complicated and difficult to implement and may require a system, you know, a center by center addressing those issues. All right. Well, I really uh, appreciate your uh, gentlemen's efforts. And I know we all miss Josh, but it's great working with new people periodically and and just get a different uh, perspective. Again, if you have any other thoughts, please email them to me and I'll take it from there. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.